Data Delinquent, a podcast that's one part data, two parts crack, served with a splash of booze. You must be truly desperate to come to us for advice. It's therapy. It is therapy. It's cheaper than therapy. I made a group. Yes, it's like I made a breakthrough in group today. Actually, no, no, it was bloody intensive therapy for me the last <laughs> I had to blow by a blood pressure monitor monitor and everything. <laughs> I would have assumed that you just had something like that. I know I'm the eldest here. I'm assuming that. No, I'm the no, no, like a, you know, like people have the little Bluetooth SPO2 monitors and all these kind of things. No, and... no, seriously, I am. I pay ca- cash. <laughs> yeah. you know, right. Do we want to? Do we want to do an attempt at something close to some kind of introduction that isn't three quarters of the way through? <laughs> that sounds like a terrible idea, but yeah, we should probably do that. Yeah, you've already got yours because since you're not doing the the video feed, Austin, then your name's just popped up in the video feed. So I don't even have to do title cards now, which is fantastic. (laughs) But uh, last time around, we didn't technically have a name. Uh, I mean, uh, no one's come up with anything more, you know, um, engaging than data delinquents. And I just kind of blustered on ahead like a pig ignorant bastard and registered all the shit because if there's one thing that's a pain in the ass it's naming things I'm using an hashtag these three going ding down (laughs) (laughs) well that'll do we'll do a round up and just say hello and that'll do so I'm Andrew Bolster that's enough for me I'm Jason Bell and that's enough for me and I'm Jane Blaney and there's more to come from me. Uh-oh. Um, I'm Austin Tanny, and that's more than enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we, we only actually had one pre-prepared kickoff discussion topic. Um, that Jason, Jason, I think, do you want to take this one to kick off? Oh, you mean the Internet of Things? It, yes, you know, the, the sort of, yeah, uh, you know. We always knew that IoT security was going to grab us by the short and curlies, but I didn't think it was going to be that literal. Oh, right. Okay, I missed this. I was getting caught up on the um, government using Microsoft Excel to record all the Oh, God, yeah, we have to discuss that. Oh, yeah. Do we want to get that one out of the way and then let the the teledildonics be a sort of second half? Yeah, the internet of shit can come later. Oh no! No, that's that's the other side. <laughs> Internet of <laughs> websites you've you been looking at. At least, at, least, at, least, at, least, at least different ones to search. You know it's supposed to be red tube, not brown tube. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? A new, is that a new other AWS? porn sites are available? <laughs> is, that a, is that a new AWS database? <laughs> brown shift. Brown shift. How to get three terabytes of shy data somewhere else? <laughs> so data disposal of sh- a service. So then, coming back to Jane's point, talking about shite data and using Excel for all of the NHS track and trace data. What do you think? See, I, I'm not convinced that this was actually being used as a database. I think this was a intermediate transfer format, and that because I think it was the Daily Mail that originally broke 
the story that it was being simplified for the audience to go, oh, they were running their database off Excel. I'm, I'm cynical about government IT projects as much as anyone else. I find it very difficult to believe that this was actually the information management system. So do I. Even if I find it worrying that they brought, I mean, if you think about where Excel um, throws up the furball and says it can't take any more rows, I mean, they bundle the patients together. There's no time stamping of data there either. I would be expecting text files or CSVs coming from different locations. Why the hell have they put their eggs all in one bloody basket anyway? So, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, how many... Because there was the intern that knew how to do pivot tables. Ah. And, and that was how they were doing the reports that went to Sage. So the thing is, but the other crazy one was, as you're saying about the rows, there's the two things that sort of fuck me off personally. One is the the idea that it just silently drops rows. If you've got a file that's too many rows, it just goes, yeah, fuck that, those things in particular. But that's a failure on Excel, and I think there is generally an error message. But it, you know, it's kind of impressive to have something that would, that would do that, but not go like out of memory. But then the other one is that they were using columns for the individual case. Studies yep. and personally, I am a massive fan of column data stores, but not like but that. Excel is not a column data store. <laughs> but that now, the, the, I don't know if that was ever proven. But that was one of the suggestions that the reason this happened was because they were using it as a per patient was a column rather than a row, which is again the only thing I can think is that someone once heard of columnar databases and thought, "Oh, that sounds interesting. Let's try that." Yeah, yeah, there's a difference between HBase and Excel, though. Is there, though? Austin, can I ask you a quick, quick question to move on any further? Your, 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 the mug that you're drinking out of. Yes. Can you show it to your camera again, please? And it's got, it's got MAM written on it. It does. Is that, in, is that it's in your blood I, or sort of someone else's? It's, it's in, I don't believe it's anyone's blood, but I also... Oh, no, right. I don't know where this mug came from. It just, I found it in my cupboard. It's not mine. Is it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it your mum's? No. Oh, okay. None of us are is sure it, where it came from. someone else's mum's? <laughs> it must be, but none of us are sure where it came from. It just showed up one day. Did you get it at a car, car boot sale and it bought to someone's mum? I don't I think so. Like, we really <laughs> don't know where it came from. It was like I came home one day and found, an, Ade I found an Adele CD in my house once and was just outraged. I think, think, think there's an action line number for that. Yeah, there should be, but uh, yeah, like myself and Steph are utterly Hello? confused. Is it me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. confused. Neither of us have ever bought an Adele CD. We don't know where it came from, and it just showed up on a shelf once. It's like that. It must be that thing. You've all read Good Omens, I hope. It's a, it's the new Apple Apple service. You can get the YouTube yeah. and direct it to your iPod. And all. They actually bring it to your house. Yeah, this, I think it's also like the the Good Omens thing, where if you just leave a CD lying around for long enough, it just turns into an Adele CD. <laughs> anyway, anyway, back to the Christ, you know what, what we've been able to establish so far is that you lot don't need drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually worse sober than I am, I am drunk. Oh, Jane, have you been waiting for this since last Tuesday when we were going to record? 
have I've been waiting have well well, when did they break? Uh, uh, any, sorry, Jane, can carry on. I just, I disturbed, I got transfixed by Austin's mug. And I mean, the one who's drinking out of his face. <laughs> I have to, Austin. The Les Clay People conversion program seems to be going very well. <laughs> anyway, well, sorry, Jane. Well, I just checked on the Guardian website and it was a CSV that came in. It was the comma separated doodah. That came from one of the labs, and it was a, it's a daily report. But this is what I mean. I think what was happening was that it wasn't that the Excel was being used as the data format. It was that Excel was being used as the data manipulation, effectively as the transform layer. And I'm going, that sounds horrifying because Excel's dealing with CSV is questionable at the best of times, especially if you've got human-entered data, which I presume these test labs are going to be coming in from anyway. So, uh, And the simple fact, simple fact probably. Yeah. yeah. I have worked with data from many labs and all machines will output it as a CSV and the default thing for people to do is then to open it in Excel. And I remember at one point, Jane, you'll probably appreciate this. At one point, we had a, an issue where we kept getting this weird gene signature that kept coming up. Oh, the, yes. The gene October 13th, mm -hmm. which is not a gene. And it just turns out that it's whatever the gene name is. When you open it Excel, it converts it to October the 13th. So we had a whole bunch of gene signatures that had October the 13th in them, which really was fascinating because it apparently was a very significant gene. And <laughs> it's today. September and March um, appears quite uh, September the 1st and March the 1st as well. Um, but there was a study on that about how many, somebody had gone through all of the biomed papers that have been published where the authors haven't caught that error. Shit. Microsoft Bill Gates gives in the most mysterious of ways. Absolutely. So what would you guys have used for data manipulation then if it was for summarization or pre even bloody quality control? I'd want some quality control in the data before I started playing with it. Uh, Avro, then it's in a binary form, right? It's sm smaller and can bloody see it unless they've got a schema to read it from. In case anyone doesn't believe me and Jane, Jane this is actually a legitimate thing. We actually renamed some human genes to stop Excel from misreading the mistakes. I haven't actually realised it had been renamed. I just thought Excel had started behaving itself in terms of importing all data. <laughs> there you go. So March 1 gets converted to 1MAR. There's quite a few of them. But it's the fact people never picked up on it and published it and the reviewers didn't pick up on it. Jeez. Well, I mean, this I, is the thing. It, it's the kind of thing where, um, how would you put it? Researchers, people who use data systems to solve problems, um, uh, solve actual problems, generally don't worry about the data engineering challenges. And I mean, realistically, there should have been somebody sitting there going with test cases and with validation cases and going, I have this transformation pipeline. If I give it this block of data, 
I have a gold record version of what that data is supposed to look like at the end. Mm. I should be able to add an Excel export or whatever. I should be able to do all these extra things and still validate that my pipeline that I've created does exactly what it was originally designed to do. And, you know, catching something like those kind of test cases or that kind of Excel, I'm suddenly going to change a gene sequence should have been relatively easy to catch with some pretty basic data hygiene techniques. So like I got roped into doing, I, I really need to stop saying yes to things because the folks who were doing the Northern Ireland Developers Conference made the mistake of asking me to do a half day workshop on uh, Python for uh, data analysis. Um, I ended up panicking completely wrote the equivalent of about two days worth of content none of it properly oh, finished um motion detected at the front door <sighs> shush do not just, just, uh, just to briefly interject the problem that you've already gone down there is that you've worked on the assumption that scientists know how to use anything other than excel or very occasionally r oh or sbss was another one that i got recently oh <sighs> Oh, yeah, good God. Does that still exist? Damn, damn yeah. no screenshot. No screenshot. But the thing is, it's not even how they know how to do it. They know what questions to ask. You know, mm. when, is anyone sitting there going, is the same patient recorded twice? You know, um, or, you know, uh, um, has, it's just that, you know, when I've got a patient data set, I don't start analyzing, I start checking them. So this is one of the other things that's, so we were saying that CSV is the standard output for everything. One of the fundamental problems with CSV is that it has absolutely no self-validation, right? In that's terms dreadful. of the operations that you can do on it. You, yeah, so one of the examples would be date times is the perfect example, right? You have a date time. You expect it to behave in a certain range. That could be encoded as, an int. It could be it, it could be whatever standard you want, but it should be treated as a date time. So whenever you export it as a string, regardless of however it's stored on the disk or on the file, it should come out to a particular, in most cases with date times, ISO format that you can validate very cleanly. If you then suddenly have a negative in that column, then you should ask questions about the entire thing and you go, hold on, there's a value in this that doesn't make any sense. Same kind of thing fits in with categories. So I'm actually a big fan of using proper enums or categorical data types, not because they're particularly performant or because they're good at uh, reducing space. Those are all nice things, but I don't really care about them. What I care about is if somebody tries to do an average on something that is physically impossible to do an average of. So, you know, you want to have it that the, in my case, the Python interpreter goes and says, you tried to ask a really fucking stupid question. You tried to ask me what was the average between male and female in this case. Um, and I'm going, if you have that included as strings, then it just goes, yeah, the average of these two strings, if you squint at it hard enough, could be this kind of thing. But whenever you are able on the data creation side to encode and say, this is a category, these are not ordered. These, you know, they're not lexicographic or whatever. And I'm just a fan of baking the intelligence into the data. Yeah, that's preempting stupid users, essentially. Well, it's that the, the, the producer, often whenever you're talking about these pipelines, the producers and the consumers 
might have very different ideas about what that data actually is. So the producer has one concept of what they're trying to give you. And then the consumer might twist that around and you know, abuse it to their own ends. The challenge then comes whenever you're sort of three or four stages delayed from that, where us being the per plebs on the outside are desperately trying to work out how to get clean data out of the open data pipelines or out of the data.gov, where we don't know that five steps deep, there was an Excel spreadsheet that turned all of the MAR1s into MAR10s, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, pre it's preempting where humans have not thought about something or have done an oopsie, you know, um, and have not realized, have clicked a button and, and have given control over to what another human has created in terms of technology. So it's not, they're not fully with the data at all times. Mm. Or you've got somebody who really doesn't give a shit going, yeah, yeah, call them, yeah, 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 that's okay, press a button, send. Yeah, roughly the same shape, that'll do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's checking, but, you know, you they must know what the style of the data is about what's being recorded, and especially if you've got survival outcomes with these patients. You know, I mean, how many patients um, <clears throat> tested positive for COVID after they died, which is what something you always get in patient data sets. Oh, they had surgery after they died. And that was clever. Excellent. You know, so it, it, that really worries me that, you know, that I'm waiting for all that shit to come out. Who, who is this Dr. Frankenstein? Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Are we oh. I'm, I'm refusing to let this go down to Mel Brooks, you know, dead oh. end here all night. <laughs> I tried. But when is now? I when is then? <laughs> I tried. So I, I, I still need to um, force my partner to watch Blazing Saddles because she wants to see it. That's a very extreme reaction to you. Oh, Blazing Saddles. It's one of the ones that I'm trying to get the, uh, the stepdaughters to watch. You know, it's like you've got to watch it. You've got to get over the non-PCness of it. But it's still, you know, it's just all the hidden stuff. And basically the way the Irish come out the worst, you know, is the Irish get nothing. We have to beg for the land at the end. But, it, oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I haven't watched that for many years. I'll have to go back and watch that again. Oh, it's worth it. It's definitely but, worth it. Going back... To any format that can't be validated with a schema, you're asking for trouble from the start. See, I think, so part of the issue is, I mean, fundamentally, everything you guys are saying makes perfect sense, right? But, you know, Jane, you, you see this as well. What, what tends to happen is people working in healthcare are just not used to working with data. You know, commonly within healthcare, particularly with medics, their concept of dealing with data and working with data is working with Excel spreadsheets. They actually mm -hmm. don't know anything else. And it's, I would say it's understand, it is understandable. They've had no training. And I hope that's changing. I hope medics coming through now are learning some level of how to deal with data better. And we see some really good examples here with some of our CCIO type folks who are excellent. But fundamentally, when you come through a medical degree, you do not learn to manipulate data in any way other than to use Excel. And the problem is that that, that just carries through. And, and it ends up being that even if you build a perfectly beautiful database 
the people you're working with will say, cool, can I have that as an Excel spreadsheet, please, to have a look at? Or they tell you they need a database but can't, don't understand why. And yep. when you're trying to say, actually, you don't need a database because I can deal with text files or CSV files, fine. What the hell do you think the database is going to do? We need a database. No, you feckin' don't. Tell me why you think we need a database. Oh, oh, which, you know, it's this idea that something, you know, you construct this to them, a database is a black box, you know. Also, but also I've worked with many people to whom when they say a database, they mean Excel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you try to correct them, but then, yeah. Yeah. Jason Bolster in shock. They say, what? Excel is not a database, how dare you? <laughs> I'm not in shock. Nothing surprises me any anymore. <laughs> I mean, the, the definition of a database has been stretched so far. I, I, I don't think it really matters anymore. You know, a data store, I think, is what we're coming down to globally. But the thing that, that melts my head about the massive reliance on Excel is that it's not just for data storage or even as data presentation, but it's used as a data transformation layer and a data analytics layer, which, and um, you know, people are doing like the clever, the multi-stage equations and all this kind of thing. And I'm going, can I just take you for two hours and show you this Jupyter notebook and Python <laughs> and these nice graphs? I can still export it to Excel whenever you're done, but you can actually explain what it does. Um, yeah, on, on the flip I, side, I, I, used Excel, I used Excel yesterday and it was perfectly good. Yes, I mean, if you know, it's, it's quick and dirty. Yeah, I just needed to pull a quick graph together, it was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's not as beautiful as you would do in R, say, you know, okay, but and you can spend ages perfecting that. But see, for the students who are coming in who are not used to scripting, it's, um, but they are used to Excel. What I would tend to do with them is, here's what we can do in Excel. Here's what we're doing with the same thing in R. So it gives them confidence and it's almost trying to detox them from Excel. Mm. And then it shows you the limits of Excel as in, oh, look what we can do in R, but you can't do that in Excel. Mm. But it's that, it's, it's that visual immediate gratification with Excel that gets people. You know, and unless you're using R Studio, it, you don't necessarily have that kind of same pretty ID, you know, GUI thing, you know, but um, I think that for me is good. So like, you know, Excel is fine, you know, but if you want to do some serious shit, you have to go into some sort of scripting language and you really 100%. know what questions you're looking for. Mm. And that's the point. I mean, is, but hold, hold on a second. Was, there's there's kind of kind of three things coming coming out here, and it's it's something I've done a number number of times in the past. What we're talking about here is a team, not individual. You have a domain expert. You have someone that knows knows all the data. You have a de developer, a data science, or whatever, whatever they're called this week. Um, that's it. Um, that um, um will will then do the scripting side of it. Um, I still firmly believe no, notebooks are ready for production or public display. I think they're awful. You know? Um, I agree with that, but I'd say that notebooks can do the quick and dirty stuff that Excel does. I've seen, seen one of you, Tandra. You can't. You were hammered. Um, <laughs> sorry. I can, I can ban you. 
<laughs> you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> no, I t- look, I totally agree. But I think that's the interesting thing about Jupiter, and the the reason it's become all pervasive is because it enables people for whom their entire past is Excel to start to still work with data in a hands-on way. Right? They're not abstracted from it, or they feel they're not abstracted from it, and they're still sort of interacting. It's like, show me the first ten rows. I can see the first ten rows. I can read them, and it, it makes that it, it, it's it's a little bit more. It's not that it's more simple, it's just more comfortable. Like I, I honestly I think notebooks are great. And I, I, I but also I think Excel is great, right? It's a matter of choosing the right tool for what you're trying to do. An interesting conversation came a few years ago as ago, Aunt Bell, oddly enough, enough. Um and I won't with who or where, but it was, oh, the data science team do do all of in Python. Great. But I said, but I bet I bet deploy all your stuff in Java. And they went, yeah. I said, so you're telling me that the Python stuff ain't going to scale because it doesn't. Really, it, it will break. Uh, and they went, yeah, exact black problem to production and die, die dreadfully as soon as you start slamming data against it. I think the two of you need to have to have a chat. This is one of the things that I, I obviously um, big Python head and you know in theory data scientist, um, but. I completely agree. I mean, the thing is, the, the, the difference between data science and data engineering is whether you know what you want to have happen to the data or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, whenever you're doing data engineering, it's about, right, I know what I'm doing. I want it to go faster. Um, and the data science, I think that exploratory element is fantastic in the Jupyter ecosystem. But the number of times that I've seen people, I mean, one of the first roles that I was doing as a named data scientist was lifting a series of Python scripts that had been written by somebody whose only scripting experience outside of R was Bash um, doing Python 2. And this was a primary like ETL job running on a local laptop on a at reboot cron job where <laughs> the best thing about Sorry. it is that it relied relied on the person who was cr- who cracked open the laptop to log in on the VPN within the first three minutes of execution because it took it three minutes to read the, or to query to do the query and then expected to push it up to this destination that was inside the VPN. There was no checking, there was no validation, there was no there was no bits that went, um, can I ping this device? Um, but it, they'd spent weeks trying to work out what the particular transformations, what the particular aggregations were to do these analysis that they were trying to do. So they'd done the data science bit but they, they didn't have anyone to hand it over the fence to and go, right, make that proper. Work. Like, I will sit there with Jupiter on one window and PyCharm on the other and go, right, okay, can I get these two things to have the same results, ideally with the PyCharm one running faster? Mm. Yeah, I just thought I'd show the screen. I'm sure you guys have seen this before, but anybody who's interested in the whole pro or anti-notebook debate it's well worth looking at this presentation it was joel Cruz who basically got up and presented at jupiter phone in 2018 about why he hated notebooks and it's like uh about a thousand slides of why notebooks are shit so it's well worth checking out but i think it's important to teach people who are new to this you know to introduce them to it so they can make their own mind up about whether it's shit or not 
Totally. You know, I mean, at least if you're going to say something shit, have experience of it. Yeah. Anyone seen this book? Speak, speak so that you come on screen. What is it in this book? Yeah, and it is all data science in XL. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and it's actually really good. It's, it's a few years old, but it's actually very good. Um, yeah. It can be uh, done. Actually, I mean, the, the, oh, the yeah, biggest yeah. challenge in the field is people getting religious about their tools. I mean, at the end of the day, the process is what we're here for. And the uh, it's funny, whenever people talk about, oh, how did you end up in this field? I'm going, it's 99% mistakes and like 1% exploring the tool ecosystem to find things that make my own life easier. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I didn't have to get a neck for some people because I said, oh, you, you wrote a book on machine learning. Yeah. So it's all Python. Then. I went, no. It's all Java. <laughs> Do you think, and you talk about making mistakes, Andrew, which is grand. I know I've made some serious howlers, and it's what keeps me, I suppose, in some cases, it's actually meant I've been sending out emails at three o'clock in, in the morning going, Jesus, don't do anything with that power calculation. Don't order anything. <laughs> need to redo it again. I'm really sorry. But do you think, considering what we work with and the type of data we work with, we need to, like the way medics sign up to a code of practice, do no harm, do you think we all need to sign up to something like that? I think uh, so. I actually, yeah. I think we do, 100%. Totally agree. You know, basically, don't fuck up. Please. The, the funny thing is that there's a difference between the, the technical kind of mistakes of, oh, I, I transposed the wrong column and suddenly my... My, my data frame is now a square 10,000 by 10,000 cells and I've completely multiplied the wrong thing out. Um, and then a difference between that and, oh, my algorithm has just accidentally killed somebody. Um, I think those are two very, very different domains. And the thing is, the, the do no harm concept, it, it, it's, it's almost antithetical to the mode of operation in that most people are used to in computation where whenever you're learning it's oh oh you fucked it up oh boohoo right okay just reset your kernel restart it uh, you know update your test files etc so it's quite difficult to try and migrate that across um now one of the things that um i'm involved with is that there's an ieee working group on um empathic technologies so, um, Austin, I think you know that Ben Bland's working, working on this one as well. Um, and that uh, basically we're trying to work out, um, it's literally coming down to the point, and it's terrible timing considering what happened today, but it's coming down to a traffic light system for um, uh, have developers thought through the empathic implications of a technological development. So that's not necessarily, am I going to make somebody feel bad? It's if I have a technology where I intend it to either respond to model or activate an empathetic state in a human. So that's basically, can I tweak their modification or tweak their emotions or do I respond to their emotions changing? Um, then you have to sign up to this standard that basically says, it's it's um it, it's similar in horrible ways to gdpr but it's basically that kind of can you validate that you at least thought through the implications of the data that you're using and what you're using it for so, yeah, I mean, yeah but how you apply that to the actual practitioner level that's more challenging but i suppose i suppose i'm asking that from because my area is dealing with patient data and there are so many we release papers 
and speak at conferences going, yeah, 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 we find a new biomarker that um, will tell us whether a patient responds to a certain type of treatment. That oh, is so bullshit. <laughs> no, but you've seen so many of the things that have turned out to be total bullshit. But <laughs> what I was going to say, though, if you look at this, right, you would never allow code to go into a production system without code review, right? But we will make <laughs> clinical medical decisions. We will. Awesome. It's a long time since you've pushed to a production system. That happens far too often. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I mean, code review is kind of a default there, right? If you're going to push anything into production, you normally have a code review. It's a sensible way to do things. We look out for mistakes. But when it comes to the data science side of things, in medicine and more broadly, it's, oh, the magical unicorn data scientist has told us an answer and therefore it must be right. And so we go and write up our scientific paper or we make our clinical decision or we do whatever we want to do. And it's very rare that that's ever questioned. And it's almost never that it gets reviewed and checked by another data scientist. Yeah, and or if you are that data scientist or that data person who's the reviewer, and you do make questions, put forward questions about the code or questions about the statistical approach. Christ, you know, it's almost complete silence. It's like you're ignored. It's like, oh, but sure, but it's interesting. It's the gene we want. It's the result we want. And it's like, no, 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 I'm reviewing this. And their approach is completely shit, you know, and it's, it's tumbleweed going by the screen. So when you do stand up and go, hey, I'm an expert, uh, uh, not happening but it's like that but that that's why i'm really that's why I'm very little like less than 0 0.01 of the biomarkers that have been published actually make it into the clinic yeah yeah shit data shit approaches and shit approaches is then combined with shit code and often shit data and shit approaches combined with a clinical PI who wants to see their favorite gene of interest sitting in that top list and magically it ends up there yeah, so that, I mean, I did have, I was working with a clinician and I did some basic stats tests and a couple of data sets, sent it off. He went, yeah, very interesting. How do we make it significant? Because the results came back, you know, P less than, you know, after adjustment, less than 0 0.05 or whatever. And I was like, oh, oh. Yep, I <laughs> remember doing something. I did something similar years ago, but the opposite extreme, where I gave a list where of really high confidence stuff, really useful, and just got a reply back going, what's this list of shit? I don't recognize any of these genes. That's the danger of collaborating for us. Yep. You know, you can collaborate with somebody for a couple of months, produce stuff, stick to your guns, and then there's like, yeah, not interested. Yeah, we don't want to validate that. We're off. And so you've lost a couple of months of your work. So it's actually quite high risk for data people to work with biologists. Yeah, um, very much so. But I think for me, I would like, okay, maybe, oh God, uh, I should rephrase that question in terms of do we need a data ethics? I mean, I get the point where Andrew, you were talking about in terms of what you're working with, can it affect people's emotion? Can it impact on them? And sometimes that can be difficult to measure. But anything that's human focused, that is going to result in a behavioral change or a clinical change, I think we need to sign or intends to create a clinical change. Then I think the people involved need to sign up to some sort of code of ethics, as in don't fuck with this. You know, um, I mean, yes, you get reviews, papers that are retracted, but essentially what we're dealing with as academics would be our papers are our currency. So it's like you, you turn them out. 
you know, without, you know, as long as it ha hits a headline, possibly gets a Daily Mail headline, oh, we're grand. There's very little to do with that. Let's dig deeper. So I'm a big fan of post-publication review. As yeah. in, let's see if we can revalidate, you know, we can actually validate that. Have you left a trail of breadcrumbs behind you? Which includes code to allow us to approach this again. Let's see what assumptions you didn't test. Let's see what data you left out. I mean, this uh, is a, as, a, as, a, as a recovering academic, I mean, <laughs> that, was, that was some of the more fun side projects was uh, not even expressly reevaluating somebody's experiment, but whenever a paper went out where they had pushed for reproducibility and said, here's my findings, here's my paper, da, 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 give me all the points, but here's my repo, here's my data, here's my processes, validate it, right? Not just from an academic paper perspective, but, uh, or from a methodological perspective, but look at my code and tell me if I've screwed up. And yeah. I always took that as being the mark of um, a, oh, obviously it's a generational thing, but uh, of good young early stage academics, it was very, very clear that there was an appetite for this idea of not just um, uh, tell me I'm right, daddy, but you know, actually to advertise and go, look, I don't expect to be 100% right 100% of the time, but at least I'm, you know, putting enough skin in the game to say that, you know, I'm going to be torn apart if I do screw it up. So, I mean, in terms of this, do we sign up to some code of conduct for ethics? I don't think you could construct a code of conduct that suitably constrained any of the bad behavior that you'd want to stop. Mm -hmm. um, and that from my perspective, I think the best approach is to encourage that kind of reproducibility and openness of process where possible. So like I've sat on the, uh, as part of Farset Labs, I've sat on the uh, city or you know, Department of Finance's Open Data Advisory Board. And one of the big things that we've been trying to hammer home for years is, right, okay, we understand that there is data you can't tell the world about. We know, we know, we don't want people's personally identifiable data. We don't want people's, you know, bio, uh, uh, biomedical records. We want to know what processes you're applying to them and what schemas you're building against. We don't care about the data. We want to assess your processes. And people seem to be, uh, I was going to lead in the, the conversations that we're having about the medical community. They apply to the public sector as well in terms of living out of Excel and that there are better ways of doing things. Like, I mean, I, I, I've had far too much fun with open data sets over the years, basically spending most of my time screaming at the computer going, oh my God, why did you lay this out this way? Oh, what do you mean there's a hash on row 10,050 that actually relates to some kind of footnote that's on sheet number 12 of the table of contents that indicates that it's either uh, should be in the range zero to five or could be over 9,000. I'm going, how the fuck is any kind of Excel or uh, mm -hmm. any integration library supposed to be able to understand that in an, effect in effective, in an effective way? But, but those thoughts are not, not made that in advance. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. And one company I do know, know that did something like this is a company I used to work for. So one of the very, very first project Mastodon C did was taking NHS prescription data and they were proving um, about 
the, the antibiotic spending in, in England way too high, it could reduce quite significantly. Um, and everything was put on GitHub. And pe people argued blind with them that, that it was wrong. And they went, it's there. The data's there. The R code is there. Go and have a look at it. Look at it. If you think we're, we're wrong, it's fine. We're, we're happy to listen. But tell, yeah, tell us it. how. Yeah. yeah. Prove prove it. The best case. And no one, everyone complained, but no one actually came back. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I went for three, three nights. I think, I think... I'm, I'm a big fan of open science. And I think as much as like a, you would expect an experimentalist to say, <clears throat> here's how we did a Western blot. Here's, here are the processes. We need to be doing the same. It is that trail of breadcrumbs as opposed to we did data science. Are you, are you doing anything at the minute, Jay? Jay? What? Are you doing anything online at the minute? Am I doing what online? On, on Lyme. Lyme, Lyme disease. No, not just, yet. Just for using Western Lock, that's all. No. Okay. Have, it, have, it, have any of you guys heard of this thing, the Data Nutrition Project? No. Yeah. It's interesting. It's worth taking a look. Nope. The, whole idea, the whole idea of this is that it's basically assigning basically the equivalent of a feed nutrition label to a data set. So again, while it doesn't necessarily it, it doesn't necessarily cover the process, but the whole idea is that it gives you a little bit more detail about the data sets, what's been checked, and often who the authors were, who worked with it, who you contacted about it, descriptions. It's actually worth a look. Again, I saw it presented a couple of years ago, and I actually think this is a fantastic idea. I like that. Yeah, that's really cool. It's something that, that happens a lot. These fantastic ideas, very do these, these end up getting to the point of industry where they're going to use, use them? Because I've seen hundreds of good ideas like this that just never go forward, mainly because of lack of lack of, lack of interest from the industry. Yeah, no, and it's, I think I saw this presented, I think it was at South by Southwest four years ago. And I've seen a few people talk about it since, but again, sadly, just the uptake hasn't been mm -hmm. great. But again, I think something like this just makes a huge amount of sense because it does, again, bolster it's the same thing you said with the open data thing. We know you can't share the entire data set, but share the details of the data set. Show the, you know, show the, the shape, what it looks like, what's in there, some, you know, some of the process being used on it. You don't have to show the actual data. And I think that's part of the thing, if that level of transparency, if you're working with sensitive data that you can't disclose, you don't have to disclose the data, but at least tell us some of the distributions and tell us about what's in that data set, you know? In terms of how does that interact with industry, I don't, I, I think this is one of these situations where the data science and the software engineering industry isn't going to be the one that drives the adoption of these kind of labels. I think the only way it's going to happen is if it's mandated from a policy perspective and uh, as part of procurement pipelines where you're able to say, right, to contribute to this national project, you have to be rated at this. Your outputs have to be in terms of this format. And I think that's the only way. And, the, and that's why I quite like the nutrition project because they almost they didn't present it as a technical solution. They presented it as an aspirational social solution. And to be frank, it made it seem more like a policy solution to a technical problem rather than a technical problem to a policy or technical solution to a policy problem. 
So we've solved data then? <laughs> good, good job. Uh, we only did that in, in an hour. That was quicker than usual. Less than an hour. That was 50, that was 50, 50 minutes. Well maybe, maybe we're just all deep in the echo chamber, so we just need some, we need some data to tell us whether we're, uh, we're supposed to be agreeing or not. I'm interested in, there's only one day I'm interested in Northern Ireland. Jobs created and jobs filled. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> I remember that whenever we were looking at the location that Farset Labs is based in, one of the first comments from somebody who shall remain nameless was, I think we've got a parabolic trajectory to Bedford Street. What? <laughs> <laughs> somebody was suggesting building a catapult in the car park. <laughs> Emphasis on the word, word bollock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, we, speaking we, of which, <laughs> well, whenever the whenever the Google three um, D building hype data came out, we worked out that you could just about get a cannonball in the chief executive's window, um, <laughs> um, just about. It was close, um, but yeah, the, the crazy shit that people do. And you didn't do a hackathon. Well, I mean, considering that a couple of weeks before that one, we'd got called out for, um, <laughs> no, it wasn't that we got called out. We were flying a drone around the area and um, lovely drone. It was one of these Wi-Fi powered uh, phone ones and had the downward facing camera on it and everything. Um, loads of fun, great to play around with and actually really good to teach kids about uh, sort of flight control and how that all works and everything. And even like talking about the image processing and using image processing for location management and everything like that, which all went fantastically, except um, another one of the tenants in Weaver's Court, Pro Paramedics, is uh, a sort of private ambulance service. So we were flying this thing around out in the car park and a ambulance drives under it with the very bright patterns on the roof that the drone then locked onto as the new definition of what the ground was. So then ambulance continued and it just basically drove about halfway down Linfield Road before it, it dropped out of Wi-Fi range and then it went, <laughs> oh shit, I should land. So then I'm sitting there watching this drone that we'd only got like a couple of days before um, that had just stopped in midair, the ambulance stopped, and then it just sort of dropped. And I'm looking at it going, oh fuck. And then I see another car coming and I'm going, oh, for fuck's sake. But um, we, we did get it back and it did go on to have a very long life of <laughs> actually a couple of other major disasters. Uh, well, strange ideas. We had one where um, uh, we were um, helping out with an event in the, the Titanic suite. Um, and we were doing due diligence. We got up and had everybody set up and everything and then had the drone flying around to make sure that we had the range right. And me sitting there being a smart ass, you know, master of uh, electronics and electrical engineering or whatever the hell it was. Um, I completely forgot that um, weird things happen to radio waves whenever you introduce 300 bags of wet potato into a room. Um, because we tested all of this out in an empty room and then forgot that all of these people were going to show up. So halfway across the hallway, the drone just stopped and then landed on a table and nearly <laughs> landed on top of some per wee kid. So yeah, um, yeah. Good work. 
mistakes mistakes make for if nothing else they make for great knowledge and, and great stories Kieran, coming back to one of your other points, I don't know if you can talk openly about this, but what the hell is happening with Open Data NI? Has it just dissolved? So there's a couple of levels on this that's quite interesting. Um, I think there's, so, the, okay, this is a bit of a fractal topic. Uh, so the recent activity was that there was supposed to, there was a big push for having more practical funded projects to do education and outreach. So this was a call towards the end of last year where a, a, a load of people that we are familiar with all got their projects signed off on, um, including one of mine, which was the data art project, which mm -hmm. the idea was we'd been running meetups about connecting artists and data people. Um, to try and do cool crossover stuff. And we've done some amateur stuff in Farset that was fun. We wanted funding to take that project on the road, um, to take it through different venues, engage with more people, mix it up so that it's not just, oh, Farset people going to Farset to do Farset things and actually rotating it around. And we were successful in that call. There was a load of other people that did different engagements, different events, different programs, and then COVID happened. Um, and then basically everything shut the bed. I mean, our entire program was literally based on doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do in a pandemic of getting as many people to mix in small places as possible. Um, so yeah, that was kind of shafted. We're still working on how do we, yeah, we're still working on how do we justify that, but we'll see how it goes. But in terms of how that fits into the wider Open Data NI story, Open Data NI as a program is still ongoing and still in terms of the, the data platform, but I think there's only two people directly employed under it, and I don't know what percentage of their time is allocated to it. But, you know, the, the usual suspects that we're familiar with are still there. Um, what's quite interesting is that the shine seems to have come off it from a governance perspective because it's done its job or it has it has been a success by most political um, assessments. The biggest challenge. So the, the thing is, it was never a priority to them in the first place. It's always no. sort of fifth and sixth down the list. No, no. Um, I mean, which was a shame. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the big thing that pisses me off is that the success criteria where, oh, we have data sets up there. There was no criteria around the quality use or updating of those data sets, um, or even the there was no nobody's really taken responsibility for organizing those data sets or having some kind of normalized way of, for instance, how do you represent multi-year data? As it stands at the minute, the angle is whatever you made up with or made up with your bullshit Excel report for this year, which doesn't have to have any connection or mapping to your previous years, is now put up as a top level data set, the same as everything else, where you're having data sets where the names are becoming ridiculous, where it's such and such a, a, a metric for a particular geographic region for a particular year from a particular department under some other department. And, you know, yes, as a document repository, it was a success. As a data platform, I don't know whether I'd call it a success yet, but it's definitely fostered an awful lot of really interesting, I, I'm biased, but a couple of really cool local startups in terms of people who are actually looking at this from how do I make money on an open, uh, in an open ecosystem. Um, so the likes of Flax and Teal and Havana 
um, are doing fantastic work. And I mean, it's something that we've all sort of spoken about separately is one of the joys with open data stuff is that if you can build it for one region, you've automatically built it for the entire world if you're sticking to conventional standards. So ironically enough, because of the per quality of our local data, the likes of Flax and Teal and Nevada and the other ones, they're effectively going through a trial by fire that if they manage to make anything fucking useful out of local open data, the, the, the systems that they build to solve that data problem, that data cleanliness problem, are actually going to put them in a really good stead to take their products anywhere. The, 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 the one, one thing that's come out of the open data products is that Cecilia De Daly wants to kill me. It wouldn't be a juice conversation if we didn't get at least one discussion about Cecilia's ring. Or Darcy Bustle. Uh, yes. <laughs> who, who is Cecilia Daly? <laughs> Weather person. Ah, uh, she's... On local news. What are you like? <sighs> no, so there was a, a slide, an open data thing from 2006-16. And we're talking about sorry. How's the restraining order working? Is that up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually scared. Um, someone, someone told me. Um, someone told me that they were in the same the same with her at school, and she's um, um, she's fried. So I, um, I'm scared. He's got a hit um, out on you, fat She's got a hit out on you, fat Oh wow! <laughs> following you. Oh, there's a title for for the podcast. Cecilia Daly got got to fuck one. No, we're not making another fucking Cecilia Daly quote. Uh, <laughs> no, I I reckon you're like making T-shirts for these. No, 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 no. It's a good good slide that people fell out of the chairs at the top. It was quite funny. Yeah. Oh, so dear. anyway. What was uh, you wanted to talk about what was this? Um, what was the link you sent round? Well, what the, the link that Andrew sent round, listeners. Oh, sorry. Just, just, I sent it round. It was Andrew that sent it round, round. Because oh, well, I, am got... I taking responsibility for this one? Oh, right. yes. this is totally you. Right. This what, is what do we want to write? I want to try and attempt to just Google this from terms. So, without reviewing the link, what terms do we want to search for? <laughs> to get this and um, let's just make this really interesting by having this recorded <laughs> is that one gonna work i think it's that one i think we should just go on the link that andrew sent us via email when we were talking about what to put together together so what are we going we'll go for let's try and keep it clean um lock oh that worked <laughs> i just googled iot chastity device and it came up straight away so this is the story of the cellmate. Um, before before we continue, I have to ask, how did you come across this? This was relevant. Well, it could, it could it, have it on. Uh, <laughs> this reminds me well, I, I found myself on a tight spot. Actually, Andrew, I'm uh, oh, sorry. You see that little gap at the bottom? That's yeah. <laughs> But no. I mean, oh, then, those, those electronics look manky, don't they? <laughs> well used. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
But I think this was publicized originally through, it was originally through Pentest partners themselves. Um, right. But then I think Internet of Shit picked up on it. Then the sort of new, regular news outlets made up. Uh, and it's a fantastic sort of um, grand collision between consumer security, um, uh, the, the glorious sort of adult implied themes, and people going, I don't understand why you would want that. And everyone going, no, us either. I mean, frankly, for me, the most shocking thing was the number of, yeah, 40,000 devices. And what? Yeah, that was the rest of it, I kind of understand, but it was that number where I was going, holy shit. Um, but yeah, so. Is that a map of where it's, is that a map of where people have purchased it? I know this, this, <laughs> right. No, that's okay. the books that okay. uh, So this, the devices were all centrally managed, right? This okay. wasn't, have, you, have, you, have you noticed that Andrew's got incredibly quiet and calculated to do what he's <laughs> And it's absolutely family fans check. It's very, very online. I have never heard him like this, ever. Uh-huh. Well, I'm trying to <laughs> avoid making the standard sort of sausage trap jokes. So how much, how much did you pay for it? Oh, no, I got a review. <laughs> The brand new oh, I mean, these hand. things are 150 quid. I'm going, I, oh, actually, I was, I, I bought a ring for that, but a ring <laughs> doorbell. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so connected to the smartphone via Bluetooth, right, okay. But it's basically a lock for your In internet of things. It's, it's a lock for your thing. There you go. Um, they did the market research for this. I mean, holster. <laughs> oh no, I'm I'm not taking any responsibility for this. But the other thing is that the this is so it was a server side API, right? So oh, good God. the basic way that this sets up is you have a device. What it does, we're not going to spend too much time on, but. It is Bluetooth connected. No, I, 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 Andrew, come on, for the viewers, viewers at home, I should explain what, what it is. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we have to explain what it is because the first <laughs> question is, <laughs> the first question is, once you understand what it is, why do you want this to be Bluetooth? Right, oh, okay. right. Come, my, come on. My, under, my understanding is that it is not necessarily the physical sensations involved that are actually the desired outcome of these systems. It is actually the remote control aspect where you as the, the locally present person have absolutely no control over your predicament, but that somebody else, <laughs> hopefully that you trust, um, has complete <laughs> control over your predicament. The challenge is that this then sets up the issue where you have something that is literally designed to be remote controlled and that your smartphone is literally just a Bluetooth modem. That's it. The challenge then becomes that that is a central point of failure in any system where everything has to go through this central server because it needs to be remotely controlled. However, this remote control server had a fundamental security vulnerability that basically meant not only could you control a given device remotely without authentication, but that you could enumerate all of the devices 
and roughly where they were because the app on the smartphone also collected all the location information and God knows what other permissions it asked for. I mean, at least it asked for consent. Um, but, you know, it... So did the, so did the owner. Sorry? So did the, the owner. Well, except, now, this is where it comes into an interesting one from a security perspective. I, so pen test partners, uh, so relatively well-known um, sort of uh, pen testing or penetration testing outfit, which as a field is just fantastic for this story. Um, you know, they're well known for breaking into um, IoT consumer grade devices. And it's not the first one time. I think they, they've done various different ones around like IoT Connect smart locks, ironically enough, um, and these kind of things. So the, these stories happen regularly. The fact is that given the specific use case for this, it got an awful lot more traction than usual. Um, but yeah. I, I have to say, I can see why there's a Verge article on this in which they've got the beautiful, you know, when they do the nice little cutout big block text that says, breaking open the chastity cage by hand would require bolt cutters or an angle grinder. Sparks. It doesn't sound like fun. Well, I think it was even the soft approach uh, required, like as, as you saw from the clip on that, actually getting into the circuitry. There was no soft reset or anything like that. I mean, in theory, you'd still need a hard reset after all of that. Um, but, you know, the, the, yeah, thank you, Jane. <laughs> Jane's been propicing. The safety word is banana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's embarrassing, Esco. <laughs> I was called banana. Oh my god. That's because I had a healthy English pig every week. Terrible for you. Banana. You drag out by the side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, God, sorry. Oh. So all of these internet-connected things end up with the lowest common denominator being... <laughs> this kind of vendor lock-in. Oh, well done. <laughs> I mean, if I wanted to be screwed by Amazon, there must be better ways. Oh, dear. Oh, I've all week to think these, hasn't he? The best, the best thing, again, looking through this Verge article, the best thing is that there's one of the people who's writing, um, basically stating the fact that their partner was stuck in this thing and that the company aren't replying to their emails. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh God, so your first point of trying to get this sorted is to email someone in China and hope that they reply. Well, I have to say, it's, it's actually quite fortunate that everyone's working from home at the minute because looking at the device, I imagine that would be quite difficult to hide. Don't, no, it's hard to tell. There's no, there's no. Funnily enough, there's no picture of anyone wearing one <laughs> in any of the reviews. Uh, well, I'm very no, glad to we say we don't even have a banana for scale. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, don't don't write that. Um, oh God! Uh, so has anyone read Turned On by Dr. K. Devlin? No, no I've, I've been meaning to read that for a while. Actually, I it's actually very very good. Hmm. And Kate is from Northern Ireland. She is indeed. She's indeed. That's one of the reasons that I've been meaning to read it. Because loyal and patriotic. 
Uh, it's it's the rise and use of artificial intelligence in that industry. Oh, no, but okay. That that industry is one of my favorite favorite techno babble words, teledildonics, which is just a fantastic phrase. But, yeah. There we go. There's a there's our book plug for the week. <laughs> but that was book plug. Oh, <laughs> Uh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's 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 the natural extension. I mean, you look well. Okay, no, that's an unnatural. Oh, you really went there, didn't you? <laughs> that one was unintentional. Um, but how would you put it? Uh, as 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 a technological species, that area of industry has driven technological development for as long as we've been keeping track. Um, of course, uh, and, and wars wars have produced some great technological mathematical. Oh yeah, well that's it. That's why what was it? Um, was it the Netflix series was called Deaths of Love, Death, and Robots? Oh, I think. Um, and it was kind of a. It sort of gave me it, uh, or it reminded me of like sort of the Isaac Asimov compilation stories, uh, sort of that sort of a very tight narrative looking at looking at one particular implication of advanced technology and a social construct. So um, there was one where well, there's uh, you know the, the typical sort of post-apocalyptic couple of robots floating around, sort of doing retroactive archaeology on what these humans were like based on things being left behind and all these lovely little stories. But yeah, that's it. Um, you know, sex and war drive everything. <laughs> sex, war, and money. There you go. Yeah, and if you get all three combined, it's a great Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was most illuminating. Indeed. <laughs> my mind my mind's too wide open, but I've kept my trap shut for most of most of them. <laughs> <laughs> well spotted. Andrew that spotted it, not me. Okay, right, okay. We're not <laughs> sound, I, I could see I'm I'm definitely getting the scapegoat for this one. <laughs> no, you're okay. That's okay. It's all in the name of open science. You're fine. <laughs> that, that that thing thing with goats is not entirely Andrew. To be perfectly honest, even from just a data perspective, I'm a little bit pissed off that the thing didn't have any other sensors. Because that would have been a fucking hilarious data set to play with. <laughs> well, I, it would be interesting. I mean, I did the, the geo data. I'd be wondering the tracking of that would be interesting. You know, do people move around a lot while wearing these? Well, I mean, I mean the, the idea of right. So, say that you added in a couple of extra hypothetical uh, sensor types to that kind of torsion-related issue. Um, then, you know, the correlations that you could draw along with the geodata would answer an awful lot of, you know, uh, inter-regional questions that have, have haunted mankind forever. Generally not womankind, but it seems to be mankind that's more interested in these things. Yeah, it's still the market research that baffles me. Who was involved in the market research for that? And then the actual technical design. You know how well, many I mean, did they need to go through for that? 
I'll bet it, but you see, the thing is that they were already fairly certain that they had product market fit. Oh. oh. <laughs> oh in fairness, yeah. I mean, at forty thousand, at one hundred and fifty dollars a pop, and forty thousand devices sold, that's quite a large amount of money. All it is is a bike lock with a chip. Bike lock with a ch bike lock with a chip, and they made six million from it. Like Alan Shiver is must be so pissed off at that. Could you imagine that would have won The Apprentice? Oh, he's spinning his grave. <laughs> oh, you killed him already. I just assumed he was dead. No, he's not dead yet. No. <laughs> I was still thinking in your part now. I'm getting too old. This. <laughs> <laughs> Austin, I wasn't expecting that from you. <laughs> well, what it was that whole thing of famous people dying for uh, a face? Uh, I just uh, assume uh, all the famous people are dead. In all fairness, I wasn't expecting banana either. That was a new revelation as well. So, um... <laughs> oh, oh, well, that, I mean, certainly this evening has been educational. So, oh, I didn't yet. I'm sure I found something. There he is. Uh, uh, how low-wing, though, is, is another debate entirely, but, you know. Yeah. I just think, yeah, I mean, it's like whatever is created is always going to be whether, you know, anything we've done, anything we've created or developed is always, we're always going to find a use somehow, which goes back to some very basic needs. I think. If you go, go back to the early internet, if you go back to 94, 95, credit card valid validate software, where was built, built on site. Oh, okay. That's all it was. Most of the forward-thinking developments that came in, in you know, through Silicon Valley around about that time was all, all around the ad industry and taking from people. That's all it was. The irony is now that um, an awful lot of the, that um, side of the, the, the economy is now getting their backs turned on by the credit card manufacturer or credit card processors and things like that, where, you know, online adult performers are having, are, they're not able to take credit card payments because it's some kind of risky payment option. So they're then being pushed to even weirder stands like Bitcoin and all that shit. Hey, you're not a fan of Bitcoin? My goodness, I'm so shocked. Uh, shocker. <laughs> I thought this was the Bitcoin fan club. I thought we would use blockchain to fix everything. Austin, I, I, I still on, on LinkedIn, you are a block, blockchain expert. <laughs> That's just because you know how shit it is. I forget the, oh yeah, I, it was some, I can't even remember what the contact was, but I just made some comment about, you know, somebody's talking about blockchain. I was like, really? Blockchain? I'm quite the blockchain expert, you know. Which everybody who knew me kind of laughed and commented, and then somebody else posted in, anyone who claims to be a blockchain expert clearly isn't. And then friend requested me on LinkedIn, to which I had to reply going, I know nothing about blockchain, and I think it's bullshit. That was a joke. <laughs> I have a feeling, I don't, I don't know if I may, may still have that shot, because I thought it was funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did the friend request come from Jason? Oh, it was it was from somebody who works for some blockchain. Who? Who? What do? <laughs> what did I say? To deserve that, really? 
thought we were friends. Fucking no. Belfast version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found it. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Send that to me. Yeah, I will. Yeah, because you were on form that day. I mean, you're just shite most, most of the time, but that's pretty good. Absolutely awful. So, I mean, I still, I still have, no one has been able to give me a justifiable case for using blockchain for anything where there isn't something obviously better for that use case. Um, it's better than Excel. The... At what? Is it? <laughs> for, for, <laughs> for patient data, maybe? No, I'm actually kidding. I still don't believe, believe that. Um, I, I prefer Excel, clearly. One actual half decent use for blockchain is in aviation parts. They are highly um, black marketed. <laughs> um, yeah, so trace the trailability on technical um, technical documentation because because tech doc or um, uh, audit trail for left is 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 obviously big. Um, yeah, so blocking blockchain at Lufthansa, it was was doing something. Um, um, in in that, there, there was a start startup, and I can't really talk about it because I don't know how public it actually is. That got well and truly shafted, um, or out for f all, and the, the tech um, where it was being used for <clears throat> providence something. Um, I think it ended up being used on on aircraft traceability by the person that shafted them. I mean, I think there's clearly a logic, there's a rationale where blockchain could be used in supply chain, supply chain tracking, but it requires everybody to buy into the same thing. Um, and ultimately for no major player to have a sig significant stake in it. Hey, Jane. <laughs> that means so he, looks like, he looks like she could take it. But, um, oh, yeah. The 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 uh, edit this bit this bit is Andrew, um, Naomi McMullen, um, friend, uh, said that Cecilia and I would get on like a house on fire, which really scared scared me. And the reason reason that she has to wear long sleeves when I'm doing the forecast is because she's got tattooed. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you got tats. So um, there you go. Right, edit over. <laughs> <laughs> I have been thinking of getting tattoos. I must admit, I've been thinking of getting tattoos for maybe twenty odd years. But I, I and I'd love something mathematical. Um, but I don't okay. think <laughs> this is correlation on your boomers or something. I what's that? <laughs> or a golden ratio. you know I mean, and then i would get you know or would you be worried as an 80 year old with this bloody great tattoo you know on your arse and it's like well if i was an 80 year old and that was the last that was the only thing i was wor worrying about well i think i'd be doing okay it's right if you uh, still pick out those lines from the rest then your job's done my, my, my i asked my dad this the story of tattoos because he was in the royal navy um and he had wiley coyote J road across his chest um and, and, <laughs> why, Dad? Why? And he said, "said the cleanest version." 
um, the, the majority of the Ark Royal crew in Singapore at the time had one of, of Quali Doty, throttle roadrunner, saying, beep, beep, beep now, you effing bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just that off my chest. Well, I mean, it's been too clean so far. That's it now. It's all been in the name of science. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> science. We've looked at everything from a scientific <laughs> standpoint. That, that's clearly the title of this episode. Is It's all in the name of science. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see if I can get this one. Oh, oh, the recommend recommendation engine for that thing be fun wouldn't it because you like you like you might like like this this is where we end up back on back on bike locks again <laughs> valley <laughs> chopper <laughs> so, sorry wonder if that was the first prototype probably, probably have to get to the greeks for that <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was the first I wonder, did somebody, did this start out where somebody, I, I assume you can buy a Bluetooth controlled bike lock. It's bound to exist. You can get Bluetooth controlled lights for your bike from our local lovely C-Sense. It's bound to be a lock. And that's probably where this came from. Somebody on, I know where we could put that. Are you monetizing this podcast, Austin? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can. And uh, you can get the Bluetooth ones. And let's see, I'm just going to check this with the lock picking lawyer. If anyone wants a good YouTube uh, channel to watch, it's the lockpicking lawyer because all the videos are relatively short because it's a lawyer who picks locks. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where it's going, oh, this is going to take ages, and then you look at the YouTube video and you see it's a two and a half minute video, and you go, oh, oh no, not really. <laughs> oh my uh, god, this is legitimate. If there is a lockpicking lawyer YouTube channel, I will be watching this later. And there's a few there's a few crackers mm. where it's it literally makes the video two minutes long, but the actual lock picking is seconds. Ten seconds. Yeah. yeah. And totally. I'm very I'm glad I don't know. Totally sub totally subscribing to that right now. And did his clients or her clients suggest these practices? Uh, it, it, he's been going for long enough that um, I think he was just originally interested in lock picking, and the fact that he was a lawyer just made it an entertaining username. Um, but the, it's not got to the point where people will send him locks to either make a point one way or another that, oh, you'll never be able to break this one. You're not a real lockpick. You know, try this one on for size uh, or, you know, usually trying to score points with friends, partners and spouses going, my husband got this shitty bike lock and I just want to show him just how useless it is. Um, but I think there's a few where... He's actually been sent locks by the manufacturers to try and validate them one way or another. Um, that hasn't always gone so well. Um, I can't remember any off the top of my head, but you know, there's always going to be a mix. I think how many? He's got two to two, two-ish million subscribers and years worth of videos. Wow. Yeah, 
And as I say, they're all fairly short and they're all quite sort of, uh, you know, it, it's the deeply satisfying deep bend of YouTube where you can get stuck in a nice recommendation loop where you just get those videos and it's quite soothing. <laughs> it's a bit like a popper. Yeah. Sorry, say again? It's a bit yes, like a yes, popper. Yeah. That, that oh, same kind no. of idea except for people who, uh, you know, uh, um, have Criminal tendencies? Feelings. <laughs> so essentially, this is lock porn again. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't it? We've come full actually, cycle. Actually, just going back to what Austin said, this would be the perfect hackathon for C-Sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, funny enough, that's one of the things. So Farset recently got the big renovation and everything. And funny enough, one of the first events that we ran was a lockpicking workshop uh, where we had a couple of friends up from Dublin ran a lockpicking workshop. It was the same guys that did the stuff. Uh, <laughs> when everyone left, all the, all the cars were getting... <laughs> Oh no, it's funny because the the hackerspace in Dublin called TOG, um, they're good friends of Farset, and they do, I think it's every, it's either every two weeks or every month, they go down the bridges in Dublin and uh, pick the locks or the love locks on the bridges. Um, <laughs> right, this is actually a service for the council. Oh, because, yeah, of course. Oh, because, yeah, because the bridges were not made to support the con constant weight of extra big chunks of metal sitting there. And bloody American tourists just keep coming and thinking it's going to be entertaining and, oh, my love will last forever. And then two weeks later, it's been grabbed by some wee well, I can't even say cheeky shit because it's my kind of cheeky shit. I mean, <laughs> some little sort of, you know, just lockpickers are sitting there completely signed off by the council saying, yes, we, we approve of this. Thank you. Um, but at the same time, it's teaching people these things. So there's there's a plan to try and start a, a legitimate lockpicking club out of Barcelona. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So it's one of the reasons why we don't actually have a barrel lock in the space. Um, so yeah, yeah. Because it's just a challenge. Andrew, <laughs> yes. Andrew. it's an invitation, isn't it? Really. Andrew, were you responsible for the Northern Bank job? <laughs> no, I actually remember this because I was in. Do we need another timestamp for editing here? Just, just uh, no, no, no. I, I'm happy enough with this story because it's a, it's a funny, weird story. Because I was in Andorra with James Nesbitt. Um, <laughs> As you do. I, yeah, I think I was, what was it? I must have been like 16 or 17 at the time or something like that. Um, and uh, we were, my family's friends with James's sister, who's a teacher up in North Coast. Um, and there was about five or six families that we all just went out and arranged to go at roughly the same time in roughly the same town. Um, so there was about three chalets across the, the uh, and we were just chilling out. So as we were traveling back, um, two people on the trip got phone calls. Uh, one of the people was a Northern Bank manager and another one of the people was a member of, I can't remember whether this is before or after Patton, but a member of the RUC PSNI. Um, and it was interesting that the police officer got the call before the bank manager got the call. And, you know, it was it was very interesting seeing the exchange. But by the time we'd landed, um, those two scarpered very quickly from the airport and other arrangements were made for their families to make it uh, to where they were going. So, yeah, 
Um, yeah, that's a pretty good alibi as far as I'm concerned. That story. Yes, but both have alibis, is what you're saying. No, I didn't travel back with Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy had to leave early. That, that, that story would have been so much more fun if you had said that one of them was a manager of the Northern Bank and the other one was a well-known local paramilitary. And then, and, then, and then Jimmy bought Barry's. <laughs> <laughs> no, was it not the... Did he not like give a load of money to the football club? That was the other oh, one. Yeah. He's, he, he's, for, he, he's a, he's a mm. big supporter of Corbyn Football Club. Well, so someone has to be. Um... I don't, financial I don't supporter, not actual supporter, right? Who knows? Who knows? I, I, I'm not interested in football, so I don't really know. No, no I mean, all I'm saying is timing. You know. <laughs> okay. And on that note, we seem to have drawn the natural halt. Hour and a half in. That seems like good enough timing. Yeah, yeah. I think that works. That, I, I, I think, think we've, I just finished it, or f finished editing, as if it was some kind of fucking effort. I took some clips and bit off of the front, added some title cards, and then cut out the bits that were personally identifiable. Um, but yes, so we might actually be able to publish both podcasts in a reasonable period of time. Awesome. Yeah, and a nice bit of product placement for this one as well. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's a positive advertisement to go, do you want the world to control your junk? Yeah. That's no way to talk about CDs. Actually, there might be some people... Oh, come on, leave C-Sense alone. <laughs> well, that's it. You could probably... Well, they have the... They have the, 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 the it, do they call it the jerk sensor? For <laughs> the, road, the road surface monitoring? I, I think you could combine these. This is I think that it's a perfect match. Let's figure this out. <laughs> this is a new product waiting to happen. <laughs> oh, well, either that or it's a very emergency break for the bikes. <laughs> anyway, so when, when, when Andrew turns off the recording, then I, I can tell a story. Okay, right. Okay. Uh, so say bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. everyone.